I should start out by saying quickly that I am sick today. I really am. I thought, wow, I don't know if I can do it. I barely got through it. Writing it, as you know, it takes a long time to do one of these for me, and I, I was really struggling. Apparently, we didn't know what was making me sick, but you need to stay away from me. More so than usual. Uh, it turns out it was Eric. I, as you might have heard, Eric uh, threw a birthday party for me on his birthday. That's exactly right. That worked out great. I refused to eat the cockroaches, even though they were dipped in batter and everything, right? It was a, uh, I don't know if you've ever had crawfish slash cockroaches. I, I lived in Hawaii. I know a cockroach when I see one, and so I can't be fooled. But, he, but your son was part of the cooking process. He, was, he, he put a, it, was a, it was a group of witches standing around the doing incantations, but uh, but the water, of course, turned completely brown, uh, and everyone knew that that was the dirt that was coming off of the cockroaches, or the crawfish, whatever it may be. I didn't eat that, but that's where I got sick. That we have determined now without, uh, I don't know why I brought it up, other than to kill time. Okay, here we are, off and running, May the 13th, 13th, wow, going to be a tough day, 2018, lecture discussion number 23 on the book of Joel. This is a special Mother's Day message, as you could expect, being that it is Mother's Day. I have a letter to read, very tiny print. I'm going to have to figure out how to make this stuff bigger. But it comes from uh, Sherry, who you all know. Um, she says, hola, senor cerebro, whatever that means. So I've been doing some calculations, and the general consensus is that a house weighs 80,000 to 160,000 pounds or thereabouts. And some crazy person out there has attained a clean and press record of oh, 1,000 pounds or so. And another fellow set the record deadlift at about the same time. Now, in comparison at 6'5", which, as you know, I am, you're no pipsqueak in any means, by any means, but your melon only weighs about 10 or 11 pounds. Let's throw in some force equals mass, time acceler mass, mass times acceleration. Anyone smarter than a sixth grader can come up with a story problem using these variables. Well, I've given away my math grade level. The point is, in my opinion, it's a bad idea to attempt lifting your house with your head, which is what I did, as you know, and I'm still suffering the repercussions of that concussion. Using your head means something completely different than how you're doing it. But if you're anything like the people I try sharing cliffside approved ideas with, you'll not listen to a word I say and undoubtedly try to smash more things with your head. I must be doing it wrong. Anyhow, I took the liberty of mailing you the necessary protective equipment for next time. So this, this is working. <laughs> Expect a package soon, void of stickers as of yet. I'm sure your fan club will take care of that in time. Little smiley face. That's very funny to me. Speaking of impossible to comprehend, this month marks the one-year anniversary of my descent into madness, apparent head trauma, blatant disregard for my own sanity, introduction to Cliffside. <laughs> 
It was one of Dave's catchy titles that caught my eye, something with the word slavery in it. And no, the original question which prompted my search still has not been answered a year later. That's, a, <laughs> that's absolutely how we operate here, baby. To the surprise of no one, she goes on to say, and I have more questions now than I ever even thought was possible. They keep piling up, just like the list of people who think I'm out of my tree. But take heart, friends, for today's mighty oak was yesterday's nut. That might be a personal assessment. Always please stop ramming your, your dome into, oh, oh, anyway, anyway, please stop ramming your dome into immovable objects. And we're back in Springfield, Illinois. I'm looking for a job. If I find one, I'll send proof. Be well, Sherry. So I thought that was really good. And I appreciated it very much. Okay, that's out of the way. More time I have set aside because we don't know how far we're going to get today. Anyway, last Sunday was another futile attempt of mine to bring clarity to the nature and the origin of time. And some have already quickly protested the use of attempt and clarity to what I'm doing with the nature of time. Attempt usually carries an indication, at least however uh, however trace amount it might have, that, that there is something happening, there is something going on that's working, and clarity likewise the same, assumes some progress to understanding some sort of scene is happening and and I I know I know that's not happening I guess is what I'm trying to say and they object to me using words like attempt and clarity until I have more success and in my defense I would counter with the relativity of both words clarity is a relative term and also is attempt so I am getting clarity and I am making an attempt however uh, small they are. And I am going to actually assess that I have progress that's been made. I'm going to say we have, but I will agree that it's not much progress, and I'm working on it. It's microscopical or it's petite at best. Anyway, things are not going as well as planned for me in this particular topic, and that's nothing new. I'm used to it, I know it's hard. I have grandiose lesson plans when I start writing them, and I seldom reach um, the hope for plateau. I've learned to adjust, and I've learned to issue disclaimers, which I just did. So there you go. Is this hard? Yes, it's hard. Is it important? Yes, it's important. And my goal is to just at least keep beating it into you until you start to... Uh, figure it out, which I have absolute confidence that you will. The key to bringing these kinds of lectures forward is to cling to the occasional rare victory. And I'll let you know if one of those happens in the next couple of weeks. So far, not so good. Okay, so last week, while we're in the throes of Joel 3.1, and I, I did it, behold, in those days... Those days is a big phrase, and at that time, so he 
makes it specific that there are specific days and a specific time that is way in the future of Joel. Behold, in those days and at that time, that's the word of the Lord God Almighty himself. God is saying time, and he's not just saying time, he's told you exactly what time. So if he said, behold, in on Thursday and gave you the year and the month, and he told you it was going to be 2.25 a.m., that's pretty much what's happening here. In those days, and at that time, God is saying that God, the one who installed time, he's the one who began time. That's a controversial statement. I'll say that right off the bat. People don't like me saying it. They think that it is wrong. Uh, I got Eric. Uh, or I was going to get Eric a T-shirt that said, you're wrong. Be happy that you're wrong. Stay in your wrongness. We won't remove you from your wrongness. We will allow it. God installed time. He began it. Uh, it is something that he wanted. That's where we're headed. Is trying to figure out how that is a provable statement and not controversial at all. Jesus Christ refers to himself as the one who is the beginning. He is the beginning. Well, how does your Bible start out? In the beginning. Christ says, I'm the beginning. He's referring to Genesis 1.1. It's not an accident that he... Do you think he doesn't know that he wrote his book in the beginning? Oh, I forgot all about that. And I called myself the beginning. Oh, well, I hope, hope nobody gets confused by that. He's clearly referring to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, I am the beginning. He also says it again, as you know, in Revelation... One eight. He is the one who begins time. He is the Almighty. He is the Omnipotent, uh, who is and who was and who is to come. And we should read that just to make sure I got it completely right, because it is incredibly important. If for no other reason today, if all you get out today is that when he says beginning, he's taking you back to Genesis one one. I will be very happy. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning, the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Is, was, is. When God says was, that is a big deal. I come across many who think they know what is, was, is means. They rush to sell their books with their interpretations, and I do not think it means what they say it means. Expect the one who began time to know what he means. And he did not mean what most people think he means when they sell these books. He knows what the attachments to his words. Just as he knows when he says beginning, I should go back to the first place. Beginning is in the Bible. And put the two together. Because he's telling you the beginning and what he calls himself the beginning have a relationship. So whatever that beginning is, he's telling you that that's him who began it. If that makes any sense, that's fantastic. But expect to him to know the one who knows time. He knows all of this. He knows he's omniscient. He knows the connections to all of his words. He knows is, was, and is. Who is, who was, and who is to come. And I would advise anybody that's trying to figure out what he means by that. And again, you may think you know. And I would suggest that you be patient with yourself. 
Whatever you do, don't remove the phrase from its surroundings. What are the surroundings? The Alpha Omega, which is the Aleph and the Toph. That's the Hebrew alphabet. Beginning, end, omnipotent, all-powerful God. That's what he's saying there. I notice that I agree with those who make the phrase applicable to Jesus Christ. He's saying that he is, and he was, and he is to come, the Almighty. In other words, he's describing himself. In more other words, all of Revelation 1.8, every single word is Christ defining himself, listing his his attributes. So he is the I Am. So you can make a really cool list here. He is the Aleph. He is the top. He's the beginning. Genesis 1.1. He's the end. Some would say the finisher. This, these are time. He's the beginning of time and the end of time. Who is, who was, who is to come, the almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent God. That's what it means there, all-powerful. The almighty means all-powerful. Why didn't he say omniscient? Why didn't he say omnipresent? Why did he pick... Powerful. Revelation 4.8 cements the case that all of these are referring to Christ, in my opinion, as does Revelation 1.18, for those who wish to take on that discussion, uh, mostly on the Internet. And many translations, especially that you will have with you, that it won't say who is, who was, and who is to come. It will say which is, and which was, and which is to come. And I think that is a uh, failure. That will get me letters. I think that to translate it that way loses its true meaning. And obviously doesn't conform to the context. The list of attributes that Christ is certainly enumerating is it fits with if it is referring to him not to an event. Even though the event and him, I, you can make the case, are not distinguishable. But I think that he says, I am. I am the first of the alphabet, the last of the alphabet, the beginning of time, the end of time. I am someone who is. I am someone who was. When God says that, what does it mean? How does God become was? Where in the Bible was God? How does he do that? And he is who is to come. Well, that is very close to this. So, clearly these are also references to time. We'll get to that as the days keep moving. Yes, sir. Mm Mm-hmm. A person who pretends to be Supper Dave brought up Solomon and things that occur under the sun, for those of you on the Internet. And that's exactly right. Though now he's got more. How many 
How many cheese puffs did you accumulate for the? How many cheese puff sermons is this particular lecture? A 40? It looks like 40 cheese puffs. So we'll be done. And what we got left? You got 38 left? They haven't started, so we're still on 40 cheese puffs? Let, let, uh, let me know when you get down to 15 cheese puffs, and then I'll start speeding up. <coughs> Where is your reverence, they say to me? I never had any, I'm sorry. <laughs> Characterological traits when a person gets into their dotage, which I am clearly in, wouldn't you agree? Very difficult to remove them now, if possible, or probably impossible. I should say to the internet that uh, the, the, the lovely niece, the favorite of all the nieces, how many are there again? Two. Well, okay, but still, nonetheless, first place. I uh, said that uh, it should be about time that I became reverent. Uh, I'll take that under advisement. That list, Christ is describing himself. I don't see any other translation of it that would make as much sense. Which is the highest view of Christ? That's what I do, as you know, when I have one of these kinds of controversial uh, passages. Which view is the, per- the view that has the highest uh, level of Christ, that honors him the most? That's the one I pick. Anyway, as interesting as all that might be, it's not today's focus. If Jesus Christ is the one who contains time inside of him, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the parentheses that has the set that is all of time inside of him, and he doesn't stutter, he says that time is held by him, Then, and he says that he is the one that initiates time, then time has an inception. Time has to be activated. Somebody has to start time. Push the button. Jesus Christ says it's him who does this. He is the launcher of time. It is an act of creation. And that's an important place to begin. To repeat from lecture 22, why did he do it? Why did he launch, why did he initiate, activate time? What are the purposes of time? What does time provide? What does it prove? Excuse me. Now, also from lecture 22 was the alternative to what I just told you. The Einstein concept of time. Einstein saw time as an illusion. He said there's no distinction between past, present, and future. All times are equal. That's the Einsteinian premise. Isaac Newton, as usual, is in opposition, held the opposite view. He said time is under the authority of an absolute observer of time. You can see his Christian faith there, I hope. Einstein counterproposed that time is a creation of human consciousness. And he said that our human consciousness creates time or determines time. The problem that he has is he never apparently had Labrador retrievers. Because if he did, he would know that they, as I mentioned a few weeks ago or last week maybe, who who remembers I'm old now? Was it two weeks ago? Thank you. He would know that animals have an understanding of time. 
then he would argue, well, they're creating time for themselves. But human consciousness, uh, from a human perspective, uh, he says, is a is the determinant of time. An axiom of physics, you know all of this, nothing is real unless it is perceived, unless it is observed. That's not just physics, that's philosophy. Someone must observe, someone must perceive, perception is the cause of reality, reality demands consciousness. The physics community will, will yell that from the rafters as an absolute fact. Another tenet of physics is the uncertainty principle. There is two things that they will fight to the death for and have. Perception determines reality and uncertainty. Perception, good for me. It's not easy to spell. Uncertainty. They will fight for those. And both of those are critical to you as a Bible student. If I were going to assign something under the auspices of uncertainty, what would I put there? That is a doctrinal food fight. I would put free will. And this one clearly is absolute observation. God outside of time. So those two physics, the physics community said these are true. Uncertainty has been, uh, let me say it this way, reality comes from consciousness, comes from perception, and uncertainty has been injected into that reality. Nothing can be predicted absolutely, only probabilities can be offered. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is likely the most known of all physics principles. It's been debated for hundreds of years and it has prevailed. Now, it is my aim to get all of you to begin to consider what I just said, all of it, how it comes together. I'll do my best now to give you the opposite views so that you can see the inverse or the converse. Foremost, our consciousness is said by evolutionists... So this is the evolutionary, atheistic, monistic. This is what the schools teach all of your children. And they beat it into them. They're relentless. Keep that in mind. They will say that our consciousness, our mind, our personhood emerges or did emerge from a pond of goo. In other words, something that is non-physical came from goo, which is physical. And eventually this non-physical thing that came from a physical goo eventually co-opted and controlled a physical body, which is doing right now to you. Your mind is controlling your body. I can watch your mind control your body. You can't help it. Your mind thinks something and your body twitches. Sometimes it makes funny noises from the back. You can't stop the manifestation of your mind what it does to its to your body your mind is control a non-physical mind is controlling this physical device that is our body the mind the consciousness the observer which is the mind upon seizing the body they say in the evolutionary halls of whatever you want to call it philosophy i guess just to be kind to them they will say that the mind the consciousness the observer which is the mind, seizes the body, then what does it do next? It creates the illusion of time. Does that make sense to you? Because that's what is the predominant scientific position. Because time comes from human consciousness. Human consciousness came out of goo, 
controlled a body that came out of goo, and then turned around and invented time. That's the argument. And once, once the, the mind created time, the illusion of time, then it utilizes time as a tool to analyze whatever else the goo caused to develop, as well as non-goo structures. There's lots of non-goo structures. Language, mathematics, ideas, those are not physical. They, uh, the gooists will say that everything came from the goo, including consciousness, including time. I want you to recognize that thought process and then begin to see how the Bible responds to it. The immediate obvious question is the opposite of that. The opposite would be, what if our consciousness, which is the deepest of mysteries, it, is, it cannot be explained. No one has explained life. They can describe life. They can't explain it. There is no origin of life that anyone will say. When you ask, what is life? There's no description of it. There is no analysis of it that matters. It is the deepest of mysteries because of the consciousness as well as the physicality. If our consciousness did not evolve from the particles in the goo pond, somebody would might say scum pond in my case, then what could account for consciousness? If it isn't goo, what else is left? And to accept logically that a non-physical mind arises from a physical source, is, is that's just not logical. They will say this to you, listen, it must have happened because it's here. You have life, you have consciousness, it must come from the goo. That's their argument, because it's here, and therefore it must come from the goo. I hope you can see the logical fallacy that's assuming the conclusion. There's no evidence of that ever. There's never, they never have any evidence of that. They don't care. What's their motive for saying goo pond? What are the gooists trying to do, the scumists? It requires, to think this, it requires extraordinary leaps of equally impossible conjectures. But even with all that said, I'm going to say that Einstein veered into a part of the truth. There is a relationship between time and human consciousness. There's some validity there. We experience time. It's inherent in us. I said that, I'm saying it again. You just automatically know that time is here. How did that happen to you? How do you explain this? Does time only exist because we think it exists? Is that true? Do you know that's the prevailing thought? How many of you, don't raise your hand here, went to college where they told you that time only exists because we think it exists? Happened to me. Wow. My first response, is that true, my second response? No, my third response. Does time only exist because we think it exists or is time independent of our consciousness? There's your, your two sides, right? Does time continue at the same rate everywhere in the universe? Is Isaac Newton right? That's called objective reality, for those of you following along on the Internet, which is really self-sufficiency. 
a state of autonomy, no relation to the external, as opposed to subjective reality, which is an imposed reality. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Let's think of it this way. It's not very good. Is time uncaused by humanity or caused by humanity? Is time uh, something that operates on its own, is self-sufficient, or do we have to impose it in order for it to exist? Again, that's Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. Einstein. Sorry, I'm barely able to function today. Newton saw time and space this way. He said time had a true mathematical um, aspect to it, characteristic. There's a true mathematical time. You would say absolute time. There is a time that is the time for everything. And it flows from its own nature and it continues without interference. It's absolute time versus relative time. That is uh, what humans or humanity, we have relative time. We don't have absolute time. We don't know what time it is everywhere. We know what time it is for us. We might know what time it is for somebody close to us, but mostly all we have is our own perspective of time. And Einstein, though, strongly disagreed with Newton. He said, time, let me repeat this so you make sure you have it, is a human idea. It has nothing. Without humanity, there would be no time. Without consciousness, uh, let's, let's put it this way. The best way to express what I just said, time is a human mind idea, is this. Without consciousness, space and time are nothing. Okay, we'll wait for the alarm to go off. If it doesn't go off, it could be an explosive device. So far, we're all doing good. How many cheese puffs are left? Let the record show that Supper Day lied about how many cheese puffs are left. (laughs) Oh, there's a distinction between guessing and lying. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Without consciousness, space and time are nothing. That's what you will hear uh, everywhere you go where this debate is brought up. So here you are, the lines are drawn, and uh, one more tedious example for those who are still awake, which is uh, changing every second now. Let me give you entanglement. Quantum entanglement is the unexplainable binding of particles who then respond as if there is no such thing as time and space. So physics has proved that when you have entangled particles, they act like there is no time and there is no space. When one goes one direction, the other one follows it, and they are vast, they are universe apart, and yet they are entangled, and they operate as if there is no time and is no space. So, is time and space a human construction also? Quantum particle entanglement has caused these discussions on time and space. In fact, causes the discussions to explode into multi-directional expansions. From the first time, how about that, when humanity strove to understand light and matter which are the two fundamentals of our experience. 
And they are essentially, both of them are essentially an analysis of energy. Light and matter are both forms of energy. When human beings saw light and saw matter, let me interject this. Remember, energy cannot be destroyed. I gave this example recently. You see it all the time. It's the pool table example. I have a pool ball. They're both at rest. I hit one with a pool stick. Now, why do I have this example? Well, misspent youth. Now... That pool ball was traveling, and it hits this other pool ball, and this pool ball starts to take off. It has We have a transfer of energy. What does this pool ball do that hit it? Well, it, I have vectors. It could go off in a direction, or it could, if I had hit it in an equilibrant collision, it might stop. If I put backspin on it, it might back up, which I can do. But in the event... Most people think that if you hit down on a cue ball, it'll backspin. That's not how you make a, that's not how you get reverse English in pool. You hit it as low as you possibly can with as much chalk on it so that you create thick friction. It's the opposite of what, why am I talking about that? Anyway, I have a pool ball. I put energy on it and hit another pool ball. That pool ball took off. This one slowed down. But the energy the two of them have will be the same as the energy applied. Does that make sense? Because there is no loss of energy. Energy cannot be destroyed. That is a fundamental truth. It cannot be disparaged or affected in any way. It's just absolute fact, proven thousands if not tens of millions of times. Nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away. That is in Ecclesiastes, right? Covered it last week. The Bible tells you conservation of energy is the way God designed it. Energy cannot die. Let me put it that way. Information cannot be destroyed. Neither energy or information can die. That is irrefutable. Those are facts. What book says that? Eventually, this gets to time and death and the fear of death. I, I made this comment to somebody yesterday, I believe. No, yes, yesterday. They had a, uh, a close, uh, someone very close to them die, and uh, they knew that they, they were okay. But we all have fear of death. Why did God give us fear of death? What's the point? Because it's everywhere. It's in spiders. I know. I'm, I'm mudding the, the new portion of the kitchen now. I'm just doing the final coats. And out of the electrical box, brand new electrical box that I put in. So I knew that it was brand new. Out of that comes a spider the size of the body the size of my little fingernail. I knew that the spider was uh, not a threat to me. The spider, however, immediately gave me the impression that it thought I was a threat to him or her. I have to say that as powerful and as manly, the fact that I'm 6'5", the spider coming out of that box at my face was an interesting, uh, evoked an interesting response. Fortunately, I did not repeat the concussion example of the earlier week. And I just grabbed the a little piece of paper, and carried the spider outside. 
telling him his fear of death was unfounded. But I could see that spider stop. Now, is that an automaton? Of course, we, we say it is. But it seems to have a fear of death. It obviously has coded into it an instinctual desire to survive. Now, there are, of course, insects that uh, will give themselves up to reproduce and there's all kinds of things. My point all of that is that there's a fear of death. And you see it all around you. Why is it there? When man began to evaluate light and matter, energies, the first time he tried it, tried to solve the mysteries of the physical realm, if you will, the one thing that he noticed is that movement is obvious. The physical creation is moving. It's been set in motion. Everything moves. Everything changes. Everything changes. Movement is intrinsically associated with time. And we gauge and we tell time by movements and by the changes those movements cause. That's what we do. It's in us. We all do it. You can't stop yourself from doing it. It's been done since the beginning of man's existence. Creation, And this is one of the elements of the time and the death interlink, if you will. Aging produces change. Exhibit A. Um, unfortunately, the favorite niece put a picture of me when I was, well, my goodness, 28, I think, maybe 29. 1978. And here I am now. Showing the connectivity, the association between time and death right here on stage. The old adage, you've all heard it. We begin to die at birth. Right? That's true. We do. The death process begins at birth. Ignore the morbidity of that and consider the meaning. The mortogenic process is at the start. By that I mean the clock for all of us. All of us die, Romans 5.12, Hebrews 9.27, and it is appointed for all men to die, but after this the judgment, the clock that ends in physical death embarks at birth. That's what it does. You could say conception. I won't argue. The Japanese have got this figured out. They count your birthday as your conception date. They count your age from conception. They're right about that. We should have done that, shouldn't we? It would have been one more obstacle for the eugenists to overcome, though they are nothing but persevering. They want to kill as many of the poor as they can in as short a time as they can do it and make as much money as they can possibly cram into their little bodies. Uh, careful what you wish for. There's no more profound evil than the eugenics movement. But I digress into ranting idiot format. The clock that ends at physical death embarks at birth. The old saying, Father, time is undefeated, is another acknowledgement of the relationship between time and decay or death. And we believe this is true because society, especially current American culture, teaches us that we ourselves, our personhood is the body. That's what they teach you. And look how powerful you are. You create time. You're amazing. But they tell you that you are the body. 
And that's a lie, and it's a deliberate lie, and they know it's a lie, and they relentlessly throw it at our children. And we all know that the body dies. Again, Exhibit A. I'm not going to ever suggest otherwise. There is no dispute. Time and death of the body are indeed inseparable, and they're assured. Over a period of time, and it's different for most of us, but over a period of time, all die. What is the old thing? Good health is only the slowest possible rate at which you are dying. You're not going to affect anything but the rate. Now, again, that's controversial. You will find people that will say, no, I can affect the death process. Well, then show me. No one resurrects cats and dogs. Why is that? I asked that question a long time ago, and nobody goes to the humane the SPCA and gets the dogs and the cats that were euthanized, brings them to churches, and raises them from the dead. Not one person has ever done it. Why not? You'd think they'd do that first off. You'd have all these opportunities. There's a reason they don't do it. You'll have to think of it later. But you know that the body, even though time and death of the body are inseparable and assured, you know we scream it always at Cliffside. I'm doing it right now. Our bodies are not us, not you. We are not the body. We are the spirit. We are a living soul. Notice that in Genesis 2-7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. The verse would stop there if that was us. If we were the body, it would have stopped there. It doesn't. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, period. It doesn't have a period. It continues and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's what it says. If he'd stopped at the dust of the ground, it had just been a body. The body requires the breath of life in order to become a living soul. How does a living soul die? Anyone have an idea? What can kill a living soul? We know what can kill a body. Eating crawfish. About a 50-50 chance. I had to look first before I said that. I see. How many cream puffs? I'm not sorry. How many cheese puffs is this? Huh? 29. Does anybody believe supper day? If he exists. (laughs) There's mints that Lindsay gave me. I have them in the bag. I should let you all have one someday. They're wonderful mints. They're really big. They're about that big, size of a quarter at least. And they're pretty thick. And they're breath mints. And here's the rule. Never turn down an offered breath mint. Somebody says, here's a breath mint. Here's some deodorant. Take them both. Just, just my advice. Here's some shampoo. Here's a toothbrush. You know, just say, okay, thanks. <laughs> just my advice for living a successful life. Uh, but What's that? That's right, applicational sermon. Absolutely right. Who says I don't do it? Did it again. How many times is that? Three, I think. Okay, maybe four. Anyway, the breath mint lasts about, if you suck on it very carefully, it lasts about 25 minutes. So it's fantastic. And they hand them out in, in churches, and that's how long the sermon has to go. Well, what we've got today is... 
how many cheese puffs. And we're down to probably eight minutes or so. So we're almost out of here. And the Lord formed a man of the dust of the ground, and he didn't stop there. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The body requires breath of life in order to become a living soul. How do you kill a living soul? What can kill the breath of life? How do you get the breath of life and stomp it out? What's the breath of life made out of? How do you annihilate it? Can the breath of life die? What's your position? From where does the breath of life originate? The origin is from what? Actually, the origin is from whom? That's why I tell you origins are important. Where does time come from? Where does light come from? Where does the breath of life come from? What is it made out of? The body returns to dust. That which sweats, which eats bread, which eats herbs, which toils. Also, all of those are physical actions, Genesis 3:18 and 19. For dust you is what it says, for dust you. Now, your Bibles would have R in there. For dust you are. R is not in the text. It's in italics. Cross it out. It's an error. Genesis 3, 18, 19. For dust you. Dust you refers to the first half of Genesis 2, 7, not the second. Dust is what the body is made out of. The body returns to Dust. Genesis 3.19 and Genesis 2.7 are clearly to be read side by side so that you don't make the mistake of thinking that you return to dust. How does the breath of life go back to dust? Is the breath of life made out of dust? Clearly it says it's not. He breathed it in. So, why is everything moving? Some are not moving. You can find them here in the auditorium. I found four already. Why is motion and time seemingly the same? Notice that I'm attaching motion and time to life. Because I am. In our seemingly never-ending pursuit of the purposes of time, notice that motion, time, and life seem to connect. Because they do. But be aware that the Greek philosophers presented arguments that asserted that not only is time an illusion, but what is necessary now to call an illusion. Motion. You're talking, who do the math, 1,500 years ago? 1,600 years ago, probably. They said that motion, movement, was an illusion. So just as Einstein and others believed time uh, was a fabrication, the Greeks, many Greeks, not all Greeks, but many Greeks, believed that movement was likewise a figment, a fantasy. It's not real. You're moving, and it's not real. Quit, quit pretending it's real. And try that on for a while. There is no such thing as time and nothing moves. That's logical, isn't it? When you decide that there's no such thing as time, then you will decide really quickly that there is no such thing as motion. If there is no time, it would follow that there is no motion. Now, you may scoff, and I can see you scoffing. But you better gird up for a fight. Bring a lunch. This is a battle. Is there really motion? Is there really time? Why would they say otherwise? What's the agenda? Bring a calculator. This isn't a gunfight. This is a math fight. You're going to need a, you need your phone now. It's mathematics. Motion and time is numerical. 
And ultimately, this leads to the divisibility of an instant. How long is an instant? That's my question. How long is an instant? I will take answers from the group. How many seconds is an instant? Most people will say an instant is zero seconds. Do you agree? Because ultimately, as I said, we're going to have to divide this instant. If you can conclude, if you conclude an instant has zero duration, zero seconds, therefore, there is no time. Does that make sense to you? If there is no instant, there is no time. If everything is, if things at an instant happen and they happen at zero seconds, zero seconds means they're not moving. So they're at rest. Try to stay with me now. I say rest, I lose five people. Never say sleep. Oh, in a sermon. It's like a hypnotist. If you conclude an instant has zero duration, then there is no time to an instant, and then everything stops. And you might recognize this as Zeno's arrow paradox. It's 450 B.C. or so. Zeno was a Greek philosopher. He was a colleague of Plato. He was known for his positions against motion. Aristotle also furthered the same arguments against the reality of motion, which is a denial of change. And hopefully you're putting all of this together. If there is no time, then there is no movement and there is no change. Everything's an illusion. You're not really moving. You're not really, there really isn't any time except what you've created. And all the, all the change that you think is happening can't be happening because nothing is really moving. If motion, an instant, is infinitely divisible, nothing moves. Because, you see, if this is an instant... That's the duration of it. I can divide that instant into little tiny pieces. I can make it infinitely divisible. If I divide it into the smallest possible pieces, then I can stop movement. And movement becomes an illusion. And we only think we move, but we don't move, is what they're saying to you. And it's my goal for you to argue successfully against those who subscribe and promote these concepts. And they're very old. Very old, but they're very popular in your academic, uh, in academia. It's best boiled down to movement is composed of immobilities. Does that make sense? If I have, if I'm moving in an instant, and I'm not moving at that instant because I'm at rest, and movement is composed of the smallest possible pieces, and there's an infinite amount of them, and I'm at rest or I'm immobile, then how many immobilities do I have to have movement? But all the immobilities are nothing. Let me put it this way. Movement is constructed of non-movements, if I break it down into small pieces. This is the arrow that doesn't go. It's always at rest, so the arrow is not moving. I learned it as a baseball thing, because I had a guy that that taught this, that played baseball. The ball never goes anywhere. You'll see it again, um, the Achilles and the tortoise. 
We'll get into these as time goes by. But for today, I just want you to begin to go, oh, my goodness, what is he trying to do to me? Movement is constructed of non-movements or immobilities, the dissection of motion into its smallest partitions. When I do that, I am heading into what arena? I'm heading into what? Quantum physics. That's right. I'm looking at little tiny things. And it should make you think that because there's something called the quantum Zeno effect. The quantum Zeno effect keeps Schrodinger's cat alive by looking at the cat constantly. Open the box, shut the box. Constant observation while the cat's in an alive state. Very quick observations. The cat lives for all of those cat lovers out there, both of you. Anyway, prepare for more Schrodinger's cat problems, because we're going to have a cat problem here trying to solve whether or not we actually move. Jump up and say, yay, the cat box is coming back. Cat box might mean something different to you than it does to us here. Anyway, much ground to travel if we can travel. Maybe the reason it seems like we're not moving is because we're really not moving. Many of the vast Internet audience claims that cliffside is proof that nothing moves. And certainly with regard to all these studies I do. Okay, let's retreat. I don't have time, do I? I don't. I would read Genesis 1, 16 and 17. That's Genesis. Uh, that's the fourth day for the primary description of establishing the sun and the moon to rule. That's what God does there. And I would read it to you. Read it yourself. He puts the sun and the moon to rule. He, they're, they're, he, he establishes a timepiece. He's building a clock, if you want to think of it that way. Jeremiah 31, 30, 31, 31 through 37 says the new covenant uses Genesis 1:16 as proof that God will be certain to reestablish Israel because they'll know what time he does it. Behold, those days are coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel. That's a behold. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day and ordinance of the moon and stars for a light by night. God is using the sun and moon as signs. No doubt about it. There's a meaning hidden here to be discovered. That's why Joel brings it up in 2.31 and 3.15. In case you didn't think it, this was a Joel study. Wherever you find sun and moon, you're back in Genesis. And for today... God places the motion, the movements of the clock, of which the sun and moon are central, the stars to a lesser degree. But what he's done is he's built a clock and he fires it. So what time is it based on the starting of that clock? That's a clock inside of time. Does that make sense? It's not recording time. It's inside of time. It's recording the time inside of time. If I could emphasize just one more thing in these three verses of Genesis uh, in the fourth day, it would be that God saw what he did by putting this clock up there and, and pushing the time button. Ding. He said what? Starting the clock was what? Good. Time is good. It directly says it. One of the purposes of time is that it's good to have time, which implies what? It'd be bad if we didn't start the clock. So why would it be bad if we didn't start the clock? It's good that we start the clock. It's good to have time. So what's good about time? Why is time good? What if there wasn't any time? Is there ever going to be no time? 
Is there, is there motion for God? Let me say that again. When God sees us, does he see motion? Or does he see everything as a photograph? If I put the photographs together, naked cards, they seem to move. Does he see the individual snapshots of everything? The infinitesimal divisions of an instant? Is that what he sees? Does God see motion? Or just us that sees motion? What do you think? He's the absolute observer. Isn't that a fun question? I just threw that in there for fun. We fun. It helps you solve the puzzle. And now you have to go into motion if you're in Wait a minute. Maybe there is no motion and you can't get up and move. You have one more cheese puff left? Prove it. Eleven more. Well, I'm stopping with eleven cheese puffs on the table. That's pretty darn strong. I know this is onerous. I recognize that it's... What used to be, it used to be eighth grade philosophy class. Thank you, sir. Obviously, every class has a teacher's pet. I'd like you to recognize Brady. Favorite niece is a strong contender, I have to admit. No doubt about it. Oh, no, there's no genetic component. Unfortunately, you and I are tied by biology. That should worry you. This is how you're going to look. At age 30, that's what happened to me. Okay, let's pretend that we're moving and rise and be dismissed. 